Well, I'm glad you made it in for the last part of the chase, whether you are streaming online or whether you are physically here. I'm glad that you've made it. We've been on this journey together discovering what this thing means to be involved in the chase, to have a heart that would be pursuing after God. We've been understanding and learning and growing this idea that there is this mutual pursuit that is intended to be taking place, that God is doing his part, that God is, he's moving toward us, but we need to do our part and we need to be moving toward him. And, and that is the chase. The chase is when we have this mutual pursuit and that we get closer to God. That we've looked at what it means to have a heart for God. That what it means to have a heart for God, that that, that would be a, a heart that pleases God. And a heart that pleases God is a heart that is willing. That it's a heart that is humbled. It is a heart that is surrendered. That that's who we would be. And, and, and that if you're somebody that you're going, hey, I'm, I'm just kind of checking out this whole thing. There's this Christianity thing. And I'm really not sure where I land and where I believe and what... what then that is great. This is a great series that's allowing you to be able to discover what does it mean to pursue God? How do we do that? What's the benefit? What is the blessing that comes with pursuing him? See, many times we get caught up in, hey, we just want to chase the blessings of God, but we don't want to just chase getting closer to him. And the chase does more. It says, hey, I'm going to chase God, not because of what he will do for me, but because of what he means to me. And that is the chase that we are involved in, is this kind of chase. We've looked at this idea of improbable victory. That as we've looked at these two guys, this King Saul, this King David, and looked at their lives and said, hey, what can we learn about the chase? That we learned very quickly that Saul was somebody that, that he just stopped pursuing the heart of God. And he never turned back. But then we got to look at David. We got to look at him as he was a boy, before he was ever king. And we got to look at him and see that here's a guy that was willing to step in. That here's a guy that says, hey, my, my faith in God is so great. That, that the obstacle that everybody else sees as big, I just see as small. Because see, what David did is when he saw this guy named Goliath, and nobody was willing to stand up and fight him, David said, hey, I'm, I'm looking at the only giant I know in my life, and the only giant I know in my life is God. That's the only giant I have. And compared to God, <laughs> that's a dwarf over there. That, that is absolutely somebody that God will take out. And I'm willing to step up and be the vessel, be the tool, be the instrument that God is going to use for this. And so David did this. And, 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 and when we look at David, we, we understand that, that David really, he knew God, he knew him intimately. That David was somebody that, that he knew him through the, the pages of the Old Testament at that time, just pieces of the Old Testament. We, we know that, that, that he knew him through the, the participation in worship, that he did this, that we know that he knew him through the practice of praise, that when we look at the book of Psalms, David was one of these guys that, that contributed so much to these songs that just praise our Heavenly Father, that he knew God this way. And the message for us was that the next time we face a giant, the next time we face this thing, there's this huge obstacle in our life, allow that to be an opportunity where we invite God to come in and defeat that giant and that we would give God the credit and say, God, we're willing to give you the credit. We're going to trust you to get past, around, or defeat that obstacle. Last week, we looked at 
the domino effect. That, that within the domino effect, we, we looked at the, the second most famous story of, of King David. The, the first most famous story is before he was king slaying Goliath, but the second most famous is his failure story. And it's this failure story where, where he went and he, he cheated on a married woman with a married woman. He cheated. And not only did he cheat, but he tried to cover it up. And when he attempted to cover it up, it didn't work so well. So then he ended up committing murder. There was this domino effect that, that what happens when we go, hey, here's this, this one little poor choice that I'm going to make. I can, I can justify it because you know what? I, I can rationalize and say, it's okay for me to do this. And, and it's just a little small thing. It's not really going to hurt anybody. But there is this domino effect that takes place in the life of David. That, that little domino that fell was just his choice to have a lingering look at a naked woman taking a bath. That that was his initial poor choice. And through this domino effect, that, that what ended up happening in the life of David is, is after he made this poor choice and he could rationalize and justify it, then he ends up doing what many of us do in this domino effect, that we seek what's going to satisfy in the moment. And, and, and what was going to satisfy in the moment was he didn't want to just look at her. He wanted to meet her. He wanted to be in her presence. And when he got in her presence, he didn't want to just see her, but he wanted to be with her in a sexual way. And it was through this that she became pregnant. And after she became pregnant, he did this third domino effect. And as the dominoes just kept falling, that he conspired to cover up his past behavior. It's what you and I do too. We're just so tempted to just keep following through this domino effect. And then we can get to this last, this last place, just like what David did, where, where we're content with the collateral damage. It, we, we, we don't care who, who else gets hurt as long as we can have what we want for ourselves. It, it, we looked at this domino effect, and, and as we looked through all of this, really then we got to the heart of the message, and the heart of the message was, was just a warning. And the heart of the message was looking at the warning, the domino effect warning, and that is that, that we need to establish boundaries. We need to establish, we need to set some boundaries. And then the second thing is, is we need to guard our heart. After we set these boundaries, we need to guard our heart to make sure we're going to keep abiding by these boundaries that are set. And so today we're going to finish this whole idea of the chase with this talk called Undignified. As I think about my own life and being undignified, I think about a, something that took place just recently. Cheryl, at the end of last year, she, I, I know, ladies, you guys, you guys, you don't, you don't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. So she turned 50 years old. And, and as she turned 50 years old, I really wanted to do something that was going to honor and just kind of celebrate that milestone in her life. And, and, and I really just took several months to think through what, what was that going to be. And, of course, I had some different family members saying, hey, what are you going to do? What's this big party you're going to throw? And, all, you know, and I, I chose not to go that route because I, I really just I, I had this idea that I thought, I think this is the way that I can honor her the most and celebrate this with her the most. And so Cheryl is somebody that, that she likes dancing. I don't like to dance. I don't know how to dance. Cheryl's somebody that, <clears throat> she, she likes country music. I can't stand country music. 
And, and as I was just thinking through this, I, I, I was remembering that, that when we were dating, right before we got engaged, she wanted to go dancing with a group of friends, country dancing, and invited me to go. And I'm like, I'm still trying to win her heart, right? So I'm like, uh, uh, of, of course, of course I'll go, you know? Um, and, and I don't know how to dance. I'm not sure you really want to dance with me. And she's like, that's fine. I'll teach you. And so, so, so we agreed to go. And it was a big group thing. And we were going out someplace called Floors. And, you know, we were, we were going to go do this dancing thing. And, and I don't remember what happened. I don't know if it was weather related. I don't know if the group just kind of fell apart. I, I don't know what happened. But praise God, I got out of it. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't have to go dancing. And, and, and we ended up getting engaged. And I told a story recently about how she was kind of ready to be done with me. And then and we got married. And so here we are 25 years later. So, hey, it all worked out. And I never had to go dancing. And I didn't have to go to a country place either. So, so that, was, that was all good. But as I was really thinking through, what, what could I give her for her 50th birthday that would show her that, that she is the one that I cherish. And so I ended up buying her a pair of boots. And as I, as I bought her a pair of boots, I told her, I gave a, a little note in there, and there was a note, and in that note it said, I'll go dancing with you. You, you, you pick the place, you pick the time, you work it out, and not only are you getting boots, but I am going to go dancing with you. Months went by. And I'm like going, it's going to be just like floors. This is awesome. I'm going to get out of it. And then, uh, then she tells me, all right, I got the date and time. And she wanted somebody else to be there. And all, you know, so she worked it all out. And so, so we ended up going dancing. So, so this, is, this is what she showed up in to dance. At the country place. <laughs> and that's what I showed up in to dance. was my snooks. I was smart enough to know that, hey, you want shoes that slide. I, I knew at least that much, right? And then, so those were my most sliding shoes that I had. So I, so I got those. So, so we did. We, 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 go, we go dancing. And as, as we get out there, I, I, I'm just, I, I proved to her that I really don't know how to dance. There were, there were several times as I was trying to dance, I literally just had to stop. And she would do this. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. And, you know, and she's just trying to help me. There were times that she just started busting up laughing because I just couldn't, I just don't have the rhythm in me. And, and you know, I'm sure that there were other people that were laughing too. But I, I just didn't notice. And the reason that I didn't notice because I did something that was very unusual for me. That I only had an audience of one that day. There's so many times, if I'm being honest, I, I'm concerned about what other people think of me when they're observing me. But this was a day that, that I put all of that aside. And the only one I was concerned about was Cheryl. And so we, we dance and we take a little break. We dance, take a break and... And during one of those breaks, she gave her phone to Brandy and said, Brandy, will you, will you shoot a video of us dancing? <laughs> and so we go back out and we're dancing and I can look over and she's got the phone up, you know. And I, I have to tell you, I, I, I know I look very undignified <laughs> out there dancing. And, and, I, and I genuinely believe that I was the worst dance partner that Cheryl has ever had. 
But she would probably also tell you I was the best dance partner that she ever had. Because she was dancing with the love of her life. And, and, and it was us just doing this for our relation, not just to go out and have, but it was us for this. We, we get in the car when this whole thing's done. And, and, and we sit down and she pulls out her phone to look at that video. And she goes, there's no video. And the first thing that goes through my mind was this. Brandy had so much compassion <laughs> that she was like, I, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't shoot it. I'll take a couple of photos, but there's no way that I am shooting video of that. And so, yes, there are a couple of photos that capture this memory, but there are no videos. Yes, there is a God. Some of you guys were thinking, oh, he's going to show us. No, I would not. <laughs> I, I will tell you about my undignified life, but I will not show you my undignified life. When, when, when I think about this, for me, the only reason that I was willing to look undignified was for the joy that was going to be received because of the one I was willing to be undignified for. See, there's a lesson in here when it comes to the chase. And the lesson is, is that, that we would be willing to be undignified at times. To, to his benefit, to his glory, to his praise. That, that we wouldn't be so concerned about what other people think. That, that we're willing to be undignified before them. Because of what it means to him. I don't think it's something that's just what we should do. But when I look and we look and we see who God is and what he has done, we see that he has been undignified for us. That, that, that he chose to be undignified for us. That, that Jesus himself, he willingly got on a cross, gave his life in the most undignified way. So that you and I would have an opportunity to know our Heavenly Father. It was undignified. Jesus tells of a time. He makes up this story. And as he makes up the story, it's, it's very evident, it's very clear within this story that he's made up, this parable that he's made up, that the Father that he's referring to is the Heavenly Father. It, it's, it's the story, if you've heard of this, it's the story of the prodigal son. The long lost son who chooses to return. The, the one who squandered away his early inheritance. Made a bunch of poor choices. Immoral choices. Lost all of his money. Was eaten pig slop for the only way to survive. And finally decided I'll go back home and return. And be a slave. Work for my father as a slave. Because at least I'll have a roof over my head. And I'll have regular food to eat. But Jesus made up the story to show us. Just how much our heavenly father will take us back. And when we look at this. We get to see in, in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 20. So he returned home, the prodigal son, he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. As he was telling this, that, 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 that a distinguished father didn't run. That a distinguished father waited for people to come to him. But as Jesus shares this story, 
he shares of the Father running to meet the Son. Jesus is showing right here this mutual pursuit. The mutual pursuit that takes place. And so when we think about the chase, the chase is a heart's pursuit to run towards the one who chases after us. That's what the chase is. It is understanding this. It's the heart's pursuit to run toward the one who chases after us. We've been examining this idea of the chase, and I want to ask you a question to see if you understand this. And and the question is, is what does the condition of my heart need to be in order for me to become who God created me to be? What, what does the condition of my heart need to be? And this isn't a rhetorical question. It, it's a question that needs answering. And here's the answer. Pliable to God. Firm to the world. That, that's what the condition of our heart has to be. That, that, that our heart would be pliable, moldable, soft to God. That, that God would begin to shape our hearts by shaping our lives. And when it comes to the world and what the world has to offer and what, what, what the world distracts us with, that, that we would have a firm heart and go, no, no, thank you. That, that's not in my best interest. That we would be firm in our resistance to the world, but pliable in the hands of our heavenly Father. That's what we need. So we're going to finish this series looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, that we're going to back up a little bit from where we were last week. That, that last week it was kind of a tough message because we just ended this thing with, with, with David and his failure and then he's got to face some consequences. But because we're not going to cover that, let me just share that here. David did have consequences, consequences that were never taken away. But yet in our New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years later, we still remember David as a man after God's own heart. Even though we know about this big failure, the big cover-up and the murder, everything that went along with it, there were consequences. One of the consequences would be that, that David would not be allowed to build this temple that eventually his son built. That he didn't get to build the temple. God said, no, you've got too much blood on your hands. There's no way I'm going to allow you to build that. He raised more funds and gave more money to it than anybody else, but he was not allowed to build it. There was calamity within his family that he he lost this child that he did the cover-up for, but immediately after losing that child, he worshiped God. He had previously repented before this child was born. He had repented now. He worshiped God. He mourned and he worshiped that he picked back up on this pursuit that he had drifted away from. Because of that, he's still remembered as a man after God's own heart. But let's back up and let's see shortly after becoming king, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 3. This is where David, he's taken 30,000 of his men, these incredible warriors, and he's using them, they're going into the city where the ark of God is. And they're going to go there and they're going to bring it back to Jerusalem, to to the capital. 
And that what he wants to do is he goes, hey, this is where God's presence is. And so this is, this is, this is God's throne, literally. And, and so let's bring this. It didn't look like a chair, but it was the throne of God. It was where God's presence would dwell. And they are ready to now bring it back. Verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's son, were guiding the cart. So, so here, here's the ark of God. It's on a cart. There's these oxen that are pulling the cart, and they're going to bring it back. They, they can't touch it. You're not allowed to touch this thing, because if you touch it, they, they, you're touching where the presence of God is, and nobody can live if you experience God's presence in this kind of way. And so they've got it, they, they, they've taken and they've hoisted it up and they've got it on this cart. Verse 4, that carried the ark of God. They were guarding the cart that carried the ark of God. And Ohio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, cymbals. This was a celebration that God's presence, we're bringing God, we're bringing the place where God dwells, we're bringing it into the capital, to the place where other people gather, and this is going to be incredible to have this here. And so they are, they're just celebrating it. Verse 6, but then when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nikon, the ox stumbled. And Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God because he didn't want it to what? To fall off the cart. And so he does this. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. This is where sometimes in our Old Testament it gets the wrath, the wrath that it's all about the wrath of God. It's all about the wrath and what God's doing. And, and yes, there's wrath in the Old Testament, but guess what? There's some wrath in the New. We, we think of the New Testament as this place that here's where all of God's grace is. Yeah, there's a lot of grace in the New Testament. Guess what? Guess what? There's grace in the Old too. There's, there's both. But we do tend to see more wrath of God in the Old Testament. And we do tend to see more grace of God in the New. And here's God who's already laid out the instructions. You could read this on your own time if you want in Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. And you can read about this and, and where God laid out and said, hey, when it comes to the ark, these are the rules, these are the boundaries, this is what you need to do, this is what you're not allowed to do. He laid it all out. They, they knew this. They knew, everybody knew you're not allowed to touch this. They also knew how it should have been carried because that was part of the instructions too. That they were supposed to take these poles and, and they were supposed to, to take these poles through these islets that were there so that this could be carried. And so you would take these poles and run them through the and you would carry it using these poles. But they weren't doing that. They might have done that to lift it up and put it on this cart. And they're like going, hey, we don't have to carry it. We can just let this ox drag it and we'll be fine. But then it falters. And Uzzah reaches out and he says, oh, I'm going to protect that. Just instinct, protect that. This is, this is God. We got. And the Lord's anger was aroused. You know better. You know not to touch this. And God took his life. Verse 8, David was angry. He was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. And he named the place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. David 
was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, How can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? He's going, I, 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 can't, I can't do this. I, I, how would I ever? I, I just can't trust what's going to happen. And so what, what does David do? He decides not to move it to Jerusalem that later gets known as the city of David. He, 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 he decides, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And instead, he took it to a guy's house, Obed-Edom, and he took it there and he left it there. Now, Obed-Edom, he's a, he's a Levite. And incidentally, the only people that were supposed to be carrying this were Levites. Levites were the, the tribe of people that this is where the priestly line would come from. And that you could be a priest if you're part of the tribe of Levi. There were, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so here's Obed-Edom, a Levite. He leaves it in his house, in his presence. And while he leaves it there, he takes off, comes back home. And Obed-Edom, he, he just keeps getting the blessings of God in his life. Him and his entire household. And so we, we pick this back up in verse 12. It says, then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything that he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and he brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. Okay, it's safe. I think I can do this. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Six steps. Okay, God, thank you for giving us that. We're going to worship you right now. We're going to make a sacrifice for you. We want to do this for you. And, and then they continued to bring the ark of God back after that. And so they did. They take these six steps. David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Wearing a priestly garment. Wearing this garment that says you have to be stoic when you have this on. This is about a presence that you have to represent to people. And you need to be stoic. You need to be serious. And you need to be priestly when you're wearing this. And yet David was dancing with this thing on. And he was dancing, celebrating God. He wasn't dancing for people. He was dancing for his heavenly father, worshiping him as he danced. Verse 15, so David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, this is his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, King Saul, looked down from her window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. There's a lot of speculative reasons of why this is the case. That, that, that she is the daughter of Saul and, and his kingship and his line was taken from him. And does she have contempt because of that? Does she have contempt because David just kept continuing? This was David's first wife, and now he's taken on more wives, and he's taken on concubines. Is that the reason for her contempt? Is it a combination of things? We just don't get to know, but she has this issue with David. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place beside the special tent 
David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he gave them some gifts. Gifts of, of food and, and they all returned to their homes. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. Well, we don't have any insight as to what she means by that. Is it this, this priestly thing, or is it kind of like it's one of those um, hospital gowns? <laughs> I, we, don't, we don't know. We just know that this, she's got all this contempt, and, and she is confronting David right now. And she confronts him. Verse 21, David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. And he appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. That, that he's telling her, listen, my audience is God. My, my, my audience is God. And, and, and you might think that I looked undignified, <laughs> but I don't care. Because that was something I did for you. You just got to observe it. But that was for him. See, when it comes to worship, we need to understand some things about worship. That, that worship is adoring. That, that's one of the things. It's one of these acts of worship. It, it, it affirms the preciousness of the one that you worship. It, it, it adores. That, that we need to, in our prayer time, our singing time, we do this because of the words that, that have already been penned for us. But even in our own prayer time, we should be adoring God. We should adore him and in the way that we pray. God, God, you are most magnificent. You are the most wonderful. Nobody is above you. Nobody is higher than That we would adore him. Because worshiping is adoring. Worshiping is honoring. That yes, it, it adores, but, but it also honors. And when we think about honor, it, it, it's respecting that, that's what honor does, that it respects. And you know how we respect? And this is how we respect God in worship. We respect him with our words and our actions. That we respect him with our words when we are actively worshiping him. We respect him with the words that when we do our life and there's the words that we say, we worship him there. We worship him in the way that we act. That's honoring. That worship, it's adoring. Worship is honoring. Worship is obeying. That these are these, these three things that, that, that we need to understand about worship. And it is, it's obeying. It's acting in accordance with the desires of the one that you worship. That you would obey their desires. That we wouldn't stop at just going, okay, God, we're going to obey your instructions. Yeah, we, we absolutely need to do that. But we also want to go beyond your instructions and just to your desires. That, that we would obey this too. Understanding this. See, worship, it isn't for you. See, worship is for God. And that, that when we worship, there, there are going to be some things that people might go, hmm, they're kind of looking at you. Why, why don't you talk this way? Why don't you behave this way? 
And to them, it looks a little indignified that you're not willing to conform. But see, we need to understand worship is for God and worship is about God. Verse 22, David said, yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this. What she witnessed, what she observed. I'm willing to look even more foolish than this. I'm willing to, i.e., look more undignified than this. What you've already observed. Even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Because what he did, he wasn't humiliated himself. But, but I will go beyond that to where I'll even be humiliated in my own eyes. To worship my heavenly father. And then he says, both those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. He's saying they are going to see something about the king who loves the heavenly father. And what you meant sarcastically, they are going to see and go, wow, he really loves God. We are only as faithful. We are only faithful to what we have our hope in. We are. We are only faithful to what we have our hope in. Think about it. Think about some friendships. Hey, you have hope in that friend? Okay, I'm going to be faithful. When you stop seeing hope in that friendship, you stop being faithful to it. Maybe it's a marriage. You go, oh, yeah, I've seen that there too. Maybe it's a career. Yeah. But see, we are. We are only faithful to what we have hope in. And it's why we need to be in this mutual pursuit. We need to make sure that, that, that we are keeping our hope in God. That we would keep that hope so that we would stay faithful to him. Because faith, it, it's either going to falter or flourish. It's going to do one of these two things. It's either going to falter off or it's going to flourish. It's just going to grow. And so we need to do all that we can to maintain having hope in the one who gave us life. So that we would be faithful to him. When I think about my own life. I think the ugliest part of who I am. Is my selfishness. It's the ugliest part of who I am. And unfortunately I've got too much ugly in me. I got too much selfishness in me. That I have to constantly become aware of and wrestle with. So that I can be undignified for him. Instead of trying to protect my dignity for me. So I would be willing to become undignified. Verse 23, the last verse. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. It's like, what, 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 what's that? This is God stepping in and going, listen, you want to squash a worshiper? You want to be somebody that you're still rejecting the king that I have anointed and put in here? You're not going to have any children. We become so dignified that we don't know how to give God our best worship. Michael had become so dignified that she didn't know how to give God her best worship. And it happens in our lives too. What would your public worship to God look like? 
What would it look like if you weren't concerned with who I was looking? How would you worship him? Because I think that we need to stop being concerned about what other people are observing and become more concerned with what our Heavenly Father observes and the way that we worship him, the one who chases after us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we, we get... We get so distracted in life, and one of those distractions is, is we, we just want to look dignified. We, we want, when other people are looking at us, that, that, that we want to look like, like we fit in. We want to look like we belong. We want to look like, hey, there's somebody that's not going to be talked about when, 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 when our back is turned. But God, we need, to, we need to have that approach when it comes to God, who you are. God, that, that, that we would be people that, that, that we're only concerned with, with the audience of you. And that, that what you see and what you observe and, and what you see in us. God, that, that we would be worshipers, genuine, genuine worshipers. That, that when we're in our own private time, the way that we worship you, God, that we would be willing to do things that might look undignified if somebody could say. But God, also, that, that if we're in the presence of others, that, that we just concern ourselves with your presence that we worship you. God, give us the courage to be even more undignified than this. What, what, what we're willing to do in front of others and take us even further in our journey with you. Jesus, it's in your name.